and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. And I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in health and medicine. In this series of the podcast, we are collaborating with the Freelance Journalism Assembly. They're part of the European Journalism Centre and offer a great set of resources for freelance journalists, including a series of reporting guides. All their resources are free to access, including their upcoming Freelance Journalism Empowerment Conference, which is on the 8th to the 10th of June. Um, Head over to journalismassembly.com to find out more and to sign up to that conference. Yeah, so in this series, we're going to be covering a range of topics that have been at the top of their agenda. And they're also things that we've really been wanting to cover as well. Yeah, so this week we're going to talk about gender and identity and we have two guests as always to help us unpick the topic. Um, But first let's have a little chat about what we've been up to. Um, You have been shortlisted for some awards, Lily. Tell us more. Yeah, I'd almost forgotten this (laughs) happened last week. Um, Yeah, I've been shortlisted for the Headline Money Awards um, for Best Freelance Journalist and Best Business Story. So that's exciting. Um, And in particular, there's going to be an actual in-person event, fingers crossed. So I actually get to go to an awards ceremony in London. So that's exciting. It is exciting, isn't it? You get to like go out and put real clothes on and going to speak to people. I'm already panicking about what I'm going to wear. I'm like, I've only got three months. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Um, There are lots of uh, new awards kind of, coming out for freelancers to uh, enter. There was the Freelance Writing Awards that was announced last week. So we all need to get entering these awards. If you don't enter, you don't have a chance to win. Yes, indeed. And one of our guests today has also just launched uh, her own awards and we'll, we'll mention that in a little bit. But let's get on to our topic this week, which is reporting on gender and identity. Our sponsors, the Freelance Journalism Assembly, recently published a guide on this, pointing out that how journalists report on issues relating to gender and represent women and LGBTQI plus people in their stories can help uncover new perspectives, challenge stereotypes and better reflect reality. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to take you through the, the steps that you can take, things that you can do to make sure that you're representing different groups fairly in your reporting. So um, let's start with our top tips on this. Um, My tip would be a bit quite similar to what I um, said when we had our episode on diversity, but it's about being aware of who you're quoting in your stories and who you're going to in your stories. Um, you know, if if you're a business journalist and 90% of the people you're quoting in your pieces are men, then you've got a real problem there. And it's something I'm quite conscious of because I report on medicine and health a lot. And even though, um, you know, the numbers of doctors in the UK are kind of equal, in fact, in some professions such as general practice, there's there's more women, you do tend to find that it's kind of the same people that are coming forward and putting their voice forward um, to be interviewed. So I think it's just something you need to be really conscious and aware of. So my advice would be to take a step back and think about who you're, who you're going to for comment. Um, are you seeking out women and LGBTQ sources? Um, you know, are you 
being representative in your reporting. So uh, what about you, Lily? What would your top tip be? Yeah, I think really as journalists, we've really got an obligation here to be mindful um, and to make ourselves aware and to be educated. And really, you know, we're not talking about people as homogenous groups. Everyone is different. Everyone has different perspectives on this. Um, I've just recently, I'm reading a book called 401, which is about a man who ran 401 marathons in 401 days, as you do, uh, Ben Smith, um, who's gay. And one of the points that he makes in his book is that labelling is never about equality because it emphasises the differences in people. And I just thought that was a really interesting take. And to my mind, it's it's just to be aware, really, because everyone's going to have a different take on this. And as long as we um, educate ourselves, we're mindful, we, we treat people equally, um, then I think that's that's what's really important um, whenever we're approaching any story. Yeah, and I suppose it's about not making assumptions, isn't it? Which you would, you know, that's something you should be applying as a journalist as a whole. So um, let's bring in our guests on this topic. Uh, first, we have Rachel Davis. Um, hi, Rachel. Hi, yeah, nice to, have, nice to be here. Uh, she's a freelance journalist and copywriter who specializes in tech, travel and lifestyle. She's written a lot of stories related to gender and identity, including pieces on women in STEM and the battle to preserve the history of LGBTQ plus computer games. Uh, she's the creator of the Failing Publicly newsletter. And as Lily mentioned, she's just launched the Independent Newsletter Awards. Yeah, and we also have Imara Jones. Hi there. Hello. Imara is an award-winning journalist and creator of Translash Media, a cross-platform journalism, personal storytelling and narrative project, which aims to shift the current culture of hostility towards tran transgender people in the US. In 2020, Imara was featured on the cover of Time magazine as part of its New American Revolution special edition. In 2019, she chaired the first ever UN high-level meeting on gender diversity with over 600 participants. Um, we always start with our top tips. So Rachel, what would be your one bit of advice for a freelance journalist who wants to improve the way they report on gender and identity? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you touched on it briefly, but just to, to not make assumptions, um, and I think it's what we all do as journalists, but to make it a habit no matter on what topic you're reporting on whether it's science sports or anything to um give the power of identity back to the person you're source you're interviewing or the case study um ask for their pronouns ask how they want to be referred to in the um in the article and make that yeah as i say like a habit for every single piece you work on um i think there's a tendency to only think about gender identity and identity when it's relating to the topic you're working on but it affects every single topic that any journalist works on um and i think the more we make it the norm in the industry to just bring those to the fore and and make it clear in every in every case study that we source um the more normalized it will become and the easier it will be for for diversity for everyone yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I think it comes back to kind of those, almost like those checklist things that you have to like always ask someone how they spell their name. It's kind of those really basic things that you just need to incorporate um, into your everyday reporting. Imara, let's come to you. What would your key advice be for reporting on gender and identity as a freelance journalist? 
I think that my piece of advice is pretend like you don't know anything. Um, I think it's, you know, deadlines are real and, you know, we can get assigned stories that are familiar to us and or um, that we write because we believe that we have to. But I think that, especially when it comes to gender identity, the best assumption is to think that everything that you know is wrong. So what you are coming to is a story where you're learning everything. And I would even make the assumptions about what you think you know men are and women are and really come at the story from a sense of curiosity and learning. I think that's the only way to get it right. Yes, I mean, yeah, that's a really good point because it's it's again about um, not assuming you know the story before you start basically, or about that person before you start. Right. I mean, I yeah. Yeah, and I think that when it comes to gender identity, it's so easy to write off stereotypes because those stereotypes are so ingrained in culture that when you turn your story in, it's very likely that neither your editor nor your readers would question them because they're just so ingrained. But you will, in so doing, likely have done a disservice to the actual people that you're covering. I mean, I think what would be really useful as a starting point is if we set the scene for kind of why we should all care about this and why we wanted to do a podcast on this topic. So there's lots of interviews that, sorry, lots of issues that we could talk about around this, such as gender stereotyping, lack of representation, sort of, et cetera. Rachel, what's your view on sort of how the media gets it wrong on this topic? Um, I think one way that we see over and over again is to just always pick the same kinds of images of different groups of people. Um, so like an example would be um, a non-binary person is always represented as being um, someone who dresses androgynously and uses they them pronouns. Um, when actually that is just one group of people within the non-binary community, but there's a whole world of people from within that community who might use she them she, she they pronouns he they pronouns they might dress feminine one day masculine the next they might prefer presenting femme or mask it's there's so much out there and if we only present one version of non-binary or one version of any identity it just confirms those stereotypes even more and it makes it harder to to open the door or let anyone else kind of have their say in in how that community looks um, so I think, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's almost what Amara was saying just now, like not falling into the trap of showing the same stereotype over and over again. Even if you think that that's a diverse stereotype, there's always going to be a, a new way of telling you the same story or, or more people who deserve to, you know, have their story told. Yeah, and Imara, if we can come on to you, because I wanted to ask you about Translash Media, because I believe you set this up in response to hostility faced by the trans gender people. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about it and, and your view on how reporting needs to change? Mm -hmm. So um, Translash Media is a project that tells actual stories. That's why it's a journalism project. And I believe that what we do is really powerful because there's something that people get from knowing and seeing and understanding that what they are 
hearing and learning from someone else is actually real and a real story. It's one of the things that helps us be able to bridge difference and differences is that reality. And so as a journalism project, our goal is to center people's humanity. It's our belief that the way to decrease, I'm sorry, it is our belief that the way to decrease the physical violence, cultural violence, political violence, policy violence against our community is for the nine out of the 10 people who say that they don't know us to get to know us. And that's through our stories. And so we work to center our narratives through video, through documentaries, through a podcast, um, which was nominated for a Webby this year, actually, um, uh, through a zine, through our digital platforms, through our social media, um, in order to achieve that. And what I ultimately say is a really easy way to understand what we do is that we tell trans stories to save trans lives. And I think it is a response to the lack of that in the way that our actual stories are told. Um, and so what we overwhelmingly get wrong about gender are it's a couple of things that transgender people are new. Basically that transgender people just come out of pods <laughs> that um, trans people are only have one story, you know, and those stories are about a particular type of marginalization. Um, that story is about a particular type of transition. That story is about us wanting to be something else than what we are. When actually what we're doing is becoming who we were all along. That overwhelmingly is the part of the story that is missed. And I think until we get that part of the story right, we're not gonna be able to accomplish the goals writ large across journalism, which motivated me to create Trans Lives in the first place. And so that's why I did, and that's what we're all about. Yeah, I mean, it, I think um, it's probably a really obvious thing to say, but um, those stories weren't being told. So have you found that there is kind of a real, um, kind of audience receptiveness mm -hmm. to those stories that you're, uh, you know, telling. Massively, massively. I think that, you know, as there's been in the United States and actually in the United Kingdom, a, a growing backlash and a conversation around our issues. It's at the same time made people more curious about us. And that curiosity is both being exploited by people who wish to do us harm, but it also means that for a project like Translash, that there is actually increased interest. Um, and so that's the potential opportunity of this moment. The problem is, or the challenge, is that we don't really have places and outlets that are able to meet that challenge in a way that I think will um, 
that in a way that I think is the best way or that will lead us to harm. And so that's also the problem is that there's increased interest in us, but there's also in that a revelation of just how wide the gap is in covering us. And that oftentimes the people who do cover us don't have a clue about us. And by the way, it's because they don't have a clue about gender because I think one of the things that has to happen in order to cover gender identity effectively, as I mentioned, is for everyone to assume that everything that you know about gender is wrong. And that's a lot to ask of people, but it actually is the only way to ensure that you get the story right. Yeah, and that sort of does lead me on to the the next point that I wanted to cover, which I think something that we can all do is reflect on any kind of bias in the journalism that we're doing, which might stem from biases that we hold, you know, unconsciously perhaps. And it can be hard to face, can't it sometimes, that something, a way that you've been doing something or a way that you've been thinking about something, perhaps for, you know, for a long time, for your whole life, whatever if actually you've made the wrong assumption or you've got that wrong um Rachel what do you think what can we do to kind of test our assumptions and expectations around gender yeah um and well I mean firstly I think just don't like welcome any criticism and corrections that you get like I think sometimes people tend to see it as a criticism of themselves when uh if someone um corrects them on pronouns or corrects them on how you talk about a certain group of people and they take that as a criticism of their own knowledge or or even of themselves and they take it very personally I think just welcome that take it as a learning opportunity and just move on from it don't spend too much time like weighing down with this mistake that you've made just be like cool I've learned that now and I'm not going to make that mistake again and move on with it um and take every opportunity to read more about that issue when you've had something flagged up to you that maybe you don't know that much about um, like don't be passive go out there and find more information about it um, if that's not in mainstream media if it's not already been written about journalistically then look on social media um, I'm gonna expose my age as like a young millennial here but go on TikTok or something like that like go and find the places where people are talking about these things and there's always ways to learn about even things that you might not even encounter up to this point um, it will be out there somewhere yeah, I think that's a really important point, isn't it? It's about kind of arming yourself with that information and, like you say, not taking it as a criticism, but like you say, a learning. I really like that idea of a, like a learning experience and, and how to kind of get it right next time. Amara, I'm just wondering kind of on that, if if you can think of an example perhaps when a journalist or a media organisation um, has got it wrong in its reporting of gender issues, you know, are there any kind of stark examples that come to mind? You know, the sad thing is that there's so many, I didn't catalog them. <laughs> um, I, um, badly. Um, well, I mean, I think in general, you know, <clears throat> um, the way that the trans bills are being covered in the United States, I think are generally not good. I think that they seem to avoid misgendering and all the rest of it, but miss a massive part of the story, which is that that this is not a culture, this is not a part of the culture war, that this is a part of the 
the fight for power overall in the United States, which is how the right wing sees it. So I think that that's one of the huge parts of the story. And in um, in June, we're wa- launching a limited series podcast that is going to not do that. And that over a, a series of episodes, we'll lay out in great detail what I just said. I think another thing that happens is that there's Besides the most egregious examples, of course, uh, around either misgendering or, um, and I can come to that. I think the second example um, that I can think of besides that just general comment that I made is um, that this, the reporting on this can delve too much into our bodies and whether or not we actually are who we say we are. So for example, the New York Times and their podcast on this topic a couple of weeks ago um, and asking about um, trans uh, teens who transition medically um, were very focused on whether or not other arguments about this issue and whether or not trans teens go under surgeries and all the rest of it have very substantial um, medical interventions was true. And they spent a lot of time on that and a lot of time delving into what that was. When the interesting part of that story for me is how it's the policy of the American Medical Association to not do the thing that both the report and the laws were answering. And that just was never said in the entire report. So it was all this time essentially giving real estate to a side that doesn't exist, which can be a common thing in journalism. But I think again, because there's a discomfort naturally amongst cis people about trans issues, it can seem natural to do that when there wasn't even an acknowledgement that essentially the American Medical Association says that this does not exist. And so, Moving on, um, so that was that's another example. The third example, which happens all the time, which is less um, sort of technical than the ones that I've mentioned, even though I think those ones are very important, are just in the way that people report about trans deaths. So it is still an extremely common thing for people to be mo- both misgendered and dead named in reports about trans sex. It happens more often than not. And that's just such a lazy thing to do. And then often those reports won't treat trans people as people. So they'll say this person was fill in the blank, shot and stabbed. They get dead name, they get misgendered. Um, and you know the suspect is believed to have been known to this person and that's that. There's no reporting on what they did in life, where they worked, their family, who loved them, their neighbors, what their favorite foods are. No context generally or follow up about the murder itself or how it fits into a larger pattern. These are literally um, almost anonymous obituaries that mask as reports on, on, on deaths and murders. And that's a massively common thing that happens more often than not. And it's painful and it's enraging. Um, have you found any 
willingness of media organizations to kind of accept and reflect on where they've got this wrong when it's pointed out to them or is it still very much mm. kind of defensive or ignoring yep. you know those voices that are saying this this isn't you know good accurate reporting mm -hmm. a couple of things i think generally speaking at the major institutions that we could name off the top of our, our tongues i think that there is a growing understanding and receptivity that they have to report on trans issues that trans issues are um, trans issues and issues of gender identity are an essential story of our time. I'd argue one of the top three, one of the top five stories of our time is the story um, and that they have to cover it. I think a lot of times among the best editors or the gold-plated named writers at those places, those people still often get our stories wrong. So I just wanted to name that, that I think there are places where there's acknowledgement and energy around covering our issues, but then lots of gaps around the ability to be able to execute those, especially among um, certain types of editors and reader, I'm sorry, and, and reporters who oftentimes are um, largely speaking the best well-known or the, or the um, et cetera. The second thing that I would say is that at local news organizations, um, local papers, local uh, television stations, there is not the best receptivity on this, even though there are certain, there's certain cracks and movements to get it right. Um, it's essentially not there. I think some of the best places and people and reporting are newer outlets and newer publications. Um, where older, more traditional types of thinking are not embedded. And so those places can get it right easier. So I think that's, a, that's how I would respond to what the landscape is on that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Lily and I both work as university lecturers. Um, and I've definitely noticed that the students, younger generations seem to be, they're more open to discussions around gender or they'll start those conversations themselves it's just kind of you know they're very comfortable having those conversations I mean do you think there's more is that is there a bit of a generational divide here and more awareness perhaps um you know in younger generations that we do need you know we need to get this better we need to um get a ban better handle on how we talk about gender and identity Rachel what do you think um, yeah, I, well, yeah, short answer, yes. Um, I think I'm in my kind of peers, like younger journalists and um, a few of my mentees as well, who are sort of 17, 18, coming out of school and wanting to be journalists. Um, I'm seeing a lot more willingness and actually like a passion for reporting on issues that don't may not directly affect them. And I think that's also very needed. Um, we can't keep letting the, the pressure to report on um, trans or gender related issues um, to only be done by trans journalists or by journalists who it directly affects. I think it needs to start coming from journalists as a whole, um, partially just to lift the burden of emotional labor. Like when you're when we're reporting on an issue that directly affects you, it, it gets really draining. Um, I know this from personal experience. I know a lot of um, trans journalist friends that I have 
have said the same, it is difficult to keep showing up and reporting on something that directly affects you. So I think the more the more we have people coming in who are willing to do that work and report on stories that might not affect their community, but they're willing to put in the hard work and, you know, especially as freelancers as well, pitch stories to publications that might not have covered it before. Um, I'm seeing it a lot more and I'm, and I'm glad that I am because I think it's the only way that we're really going to get changed. Going to get stuff when there's more voices, more people willing to do that, that labour. And I, I wonder if for some people there's almost like a fear of getting it wrong so they don't kind of put themselves forward for those types of stories. Perhaps they worry about using the wrong terminology or or you know causing offence when they didn't mean to and that and that means that they don't engage with the issue at all um and I just wonder kind of maybe if Imara if we came to you kind of what your advice might be on kind of overcoming that and finding the right way to approach a topic if you're not you know you're not comfortable with it or perhaps it's something that you're not you know well versed in how, how do you approach that the irony is that those are normally the best stories, you know, like for me even, um, you know, I go into a story and I think that I, I think I know what's going on, but I know that ultimately I don't know. And <clears throat> excuse me, and I allow myself to be surprised. And the stories where I don't know, um, and let me just say that over because I don't know if you heard that, hearing that motorcycle, but I think the stories where I don't know are the ones where I have to do the best reporting because I can't make assumptions. I have to talk to more people. I have to listen. I have to question more. And that's actually going to drive me to the truth. And therefore I think just know that when you don't know, that's probably going to be among your best reporting. And then I think secondly, ask. I mean, you know, picking up the phone, chasing after people that you want to talk to, um, earning their trust and listening to what they have to say. It is, it's always the best and the most powerful way. And so um, always talk to more people than you think you should. Always ask more questions that you should. <clears throat> Excuse me. Always ask people who know more if your assumptions are right. And I think that that's just the best way. And I think that we are often, we often are taught that smart, we're often taught that smart journalism is approaching stories from skepticism, right? And that that skepticism is what makes you a professional and, you know, the ability to interrogate. But skepticism means that you just don't think that what you're seeing is true. So that applied to this, it could mean that when you approach trans people, you could think that trans people aren't true or that trans isn't real. So that's a great way to lead you to, um, to not good storytelling and not good reporting. I think the best way to approach this, like everything, is actually with curiosity, um, with 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 an interrogation and a need to deeply understand. And I think that if you start there, 
and you do some of the things that we've spoken about, um, you'll get the story right. Yeah, um, you've already uh, touched a bit on this, Rachel, but one thing that I noted from the FJ guide was that it recommends that sort of when, this isn't just like a story that, you know, might be very obviously about gender, but when reporting on kind of economic, environmental health stories, um, you know, sexuality and gender identity are variables that can significantly affect a person's economic status, for, for example, or their access to healthcare. I've just been editing a piece about um, access to healthcare in transgender populations. Um, education is another example. Um, so do we need to be more mindful of this in kind of all our reporting, not just in stories that, you know, might be very, um, you know, straightforwardly about gender, but just more general? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think we should just stop putting pronouns in in the same way that, you know, you put John Smith 48 and then his their pronouns, like just just put it in there and it it's easy it takes two seconds um but you also don't know whether that's going to be a really affirming thing for that person you don't know who that's going to normalize it for when they read that article um mm -hmm. it's i think it's it's a really small really powerful fact um and and just and putting it in directly and not using um, something i see a lot of is not saying um and so and so identifies as a man like they don't they are a man or a woman or non-binary like they just are that and put it in the text as part of their their introduction to the article um and yeah the more we do it the more normalized it becomes it it's it's so easy um but it's something it's something that i've been doing ever since i first started so i, I think that comes again to the generational thing i've been doing it ever since i first started journalism three years ago um and i think it's it's happening more and more it's just like a standardized thing for a lot of young journalists now it's it's one of the first questions that they ask when they first when they start doing an interview yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And it, it's really good to hear that though those changes are coming through now. And like you say, with the kind of the new generation, perhaps that is becoming just like the normal thing that they do. And um, I wonder though, um, kind of broadening this out a bit, is is if there is anything kind of specifically we need to be aware of when reporting on um, sexual and gender-based violence. I mean, do do we need to be again sort of taking um, a more nuanced approach or um, treating this kind of differently? Or what do we need to be aware of um, when reporting on gender-based violence? Imara, what, what's your take on this? I mean, again, I mean, this sounds so basic, but it's not basic because it's not being done in 2021. And that is to actually see the victims of gender uh, I'm sorry, is, that is to see the victims of people who've experienced violence based upon gender, gender identity, and gender identity in particular, as people. It sounds so elementary, but it's not, because this doesn't happen. Um, see the person as a real person. Um, imagine that they lived um, and as a part of that life. And I say that because people only imagine that people who are trans die 
And that's overwhelmingly what still lands us in the news is death. So imagine that we lived, imagine that, <clears throat> excuse me, there were people who loved us, imagine that there, we had colleagues, imagine that we had neighbors, and then go find those people and talk to them and find out about the person and find out consequently what their gender identity was if the police have misgendered them, which happens all the time. Find out what their name was, who actually, what do people actually call this person? And find out how they died. Don't just say that they were murdered and leave the story there, which again, happens so often. Um, and realize as well that overwhelmingly trans gender non-conforming and non-binary people are murdered by people that we know. These are overwhelmingly intimate partner crimes. So find, so consequently think about that and see if you can shed any light on who that was. Because often it is assumed that the person who is trans, gender non-conforming and non-binary was um, was uh, engaged in sex work and this is just a natural part of sex work and we move on. When again, I'd say in the majority of the cases that stereotype is dead wrong. Um, um, saying that not tongue in cheek, but it is absolutely not accurate. And it just gets reported that way all the time. And so I think these are some of the major pitfalls on reporting. And these are things that you should learn as a journalism student in high school, but they are overwhelmingly um, still made every day across the majority of newsrooms. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I noted at the weekend is I saw a tweet from somebody, I can't remember who it was now, but they were kind of pointing out um, some uh, coverage of transgender people that was just really awful and bad and terrible. But in the same kind of thread, they said, but here's an article that's amazing and you need to read this. And this is kind of what all reporting should be. I mean, I think that's something that we can all do more of, like this is what we need to aspire to. So, I mean, trying to kind of end on a po positive note, I suppose. Rachel, can you think of any examples where you've, it's kind of really struck you or you've noted, right? Okay, the person writing this article has really got this right. This is kind of, you know, should be the way that, you know, we're doing it routinely. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a, an entire niche in itself, but where I've seen that gender and identity is consistently being reported on proactively and giving the autonomy back to the individual is within like the sex and relationships niche. niche. So particularly independent publications like um, Get Me Giddy in the US and um, Killing Kittens as well as another great one. Um, they're talking about sex and relationships, but because they often have to be very technical when they're talking about, you know, various different things they have to be very technical about like body parts and all this kind of thing but they do it in a very inclusive way so they're talking about sexual organs but they don't conflate that with gender and they they're always being very specific but in a very fluid way where they use pronouns and um refer to sexual organs separately from each other you know they don't have to be mutually exclusive or mutually inclusive it just kind of 
rolls through. Um, so I think a lot of um, maybe like political or business or health magazines could learn a lot from some of these new independent like sex and relationships mags because they're doing it so well. Um, and in a way where you don't even notice that it's, it's coming into the writing. Um, it's just, it's fluid and it flows, but it works. And I think it's a really, um, it's a really effective way of reporting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I kind of, that's the ideal, isn't it? Where you, it, it's not, nothing's jarring, nothing noticeable. It's just part of good, a good, well-written exactly, exactly. piece. Um, Imara, final question to you then. Have you got any, um, an example, perhaps of an article that you've read or, um, you know, a documentary or anything that you've seen that you, that's made you think, right, this, you know, more reporting needs to be like this. This person's got it right. I mean, the, the amazing thing is that there are now increasingly trans people who are creating content on, on mainstream platforms and overwhelmingly that gets right. So there's a new Pride series that was directed by, um, by um, Yancy Ford, who is a trans masculine person who was the first trans person to be nominated um, for best director for a short film several years ago. That just came out in the United States on FX. It's a four part series and it gets it incredibly well, incredibly well. It reports on the history of LGBTQ people in the United States. It gets to a ton of nuance about gender and gender identity and sexuality, especially as they've changed over time, contextualizing trans movements right now. So that overwhelmingly is a great piece. I think, of, of course, Disclosure is also another fantastic piece, um, a documentary that's on Netflix, also produced by a trans person. Um, there's Trans in Trump Land, um, also produced by a, a, a trans person on Hulu. So those are all amazing stories. Um, I think there are lots of amazing books written by trans authors. Um, Ferris by Meredith Toulouse and Janet Mock's book also does... Um, um, uh, redefining realness does this as well um and i think publications like them um you know the condon uh, digital publication that's aimed at lgbtq communities also gets this really right um and is a great one to follow to learn how to report and talk about these issues and i think you know for resources on how to do this there's so many um as we mentioned um, before, um, there's Rachel's, there's also the Trans Journalists Association, um, who is online. They have a style guide. Um, they have other uh, tools that you can use in order to be able to get these stories right and the ability to be able to reach out through uh, freelance trans journalists through that association. So if you're a publication looking for someone who can be able to report on these issues, I think that that's it. Um, and there are a lot of good trans journalists. You know, there's Kate um, Sasson at the 19th. Uh, there's Orion Rumbler at Axios. Um, there is Caitlin Burns. Um, you know, so there's so many good people and places and resources. And if you reach out, read, follow, and leverage them, the 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 quality of this work can increase exponentially. And there's just no excuse. Yes, that's such a good <laughs> list of resources. Um, we will include all those in our show notes um, so that people can go and have a look for them for themselves. Um, 
we are going to move on to our final section, which is our listener dilemma of the week. Uh, this is a section of the podcast where we put your questions to our guests and fix a problem you've been having or just give our thoughts on something you've been pondering. Yeah, so this week the dilemma is from Kate via our Facebook group and she asks, I put out a request on Twitter for case studies for a piece I was writing and I've now submitted that piece. However, subsequently, I've been contacted from someone from a major uh, website who's got some case studies who are willing to be featured. And I'm thinking it would be worth reworking the angle and pitching it to another outlet. My query is uh, the person that, that contacted me, who was a PR um, with these extra case studies, she wants to know who I'm writing it for. So um, is it worth trying to get it commissioned for a different publication before I respond to her or shall I take the case studies and start writing it up just letting her know that it's not being commissioned anyway yet um so I think in a nutshell what she's saying is she had an original story idea um she wrote her original piece but in the process she's had other people come forward who've equally got good stories um and she wants to get them into other outlets um so, I mean, this happens all the time. I, I find this happens to me when I'm doing case-led, case study-led stories that you end up with like more case studies than you can fit in. And that's exactly what I do. I will go and pitch it elsewhere with a new angle. Um, and yeah, I think in terms of like what to say to the PR, it would just be honest, just say, you know, I filed it for that particular publication, but I'm going to... Um, I'm going to pitch it elsewhere um, and I'll keep you updated on how that goes. I, th I think it's, you know, perfectly reasonable to do that. What, is there anything else you'd add, Emma? No, I mean, I think I just, um, like, I don't think it matters that you haven't got a commission yet if they're saying who you're writing it for. I think people don't always understand the freelance process. So it's just up to us to kind of say, uh, I'm pitching it. Um, I will let you know, <laughs> it depends, you know, where I get the commission placed, but I will let you know, you know, once I have that. And it, it's, you know, I think sometimes when people are maybe starting out freelancing, they're worried that that's the wrong way round or that they're doing something wrong, you know, asking or using case studies before they've got a commission, but it's fine. That's how it, that's how it normally, that's how it normally works. So yeah, just be honest and upfront and say what you're doing. Um, I don't know if you would have anything to add to that, Rachel. No, I would echo that. I think it always helps to, yeah, be honest with both with both sides. If you're working with an editor, if you're working with a PR, just be upfront about what stage you're at. And um, yeah, people never seem to mind, in my experience. I mean, one thing she said is, should I start writing it up um, first before pitching it? Um, and we're all sort of shaking our heads um, because no, you, you don't want to write it up first um, because, you know, you, you don't know if you're going to get that, skew that pitch or not. So you, you're always going to pitch it and then write it up afterwards. Imara, have you got any other advice for her? No, I actually, I think that everyone's actually covered um, the advice on this. Um, I'm just going to underscore your uh, particular last point, Lily, don't write it up first. <laughs> yeah, time is money, people. Come on. 1,000%. Yeah, okay, fantastic. Well, that was an easy one. We were all exactly on the same page with that one. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so time to bring this episode to a close. 
thanks so much to Rachel and Amara for coming on and sharing their expertise on this topic. So much to think about um, and so many great resources that they both alluded to as well. Yeah, it was such an interesting episode and loads of great resources there. So we'll make sure we'll put them in our show notes. And if you want to know more about us, including how to sign up to our newsletter, then head to freelancingforjournalists.com. Also come along and follow us on Twitter, where we are at Freelancing4. You can also follow us individually. I'm at Emma Journo. And I'm at Lily Cantor. Uh, head over and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community, which we've mentioned a few times in this episode, if you haven't already. Um, and we're also on Instagram as well. And if you feel like giving us a thumbs up or a review of the podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback as it helps to spread the word. Uh, our producer for this series is Anthony Coote. So thank you for him for sorting out any edits. And also thanks to our research assistant, Helen Quinn. And we'll be back in a week's time with another episode. Bye for now. Goodbye.